0: Welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. I am thrilled, I mean beyond thrilled, to welcome Julie Batalana to Future of XYZ. Julie, thank you.
1: Lisa, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Um, Julie and I are going to be chatting about the future of power. Julie knows a lot about this subject. Um, As a professor of organizational behavior and social innovation at both the Harvard Business School as well as the Kennedy School of Diplomacy at Harvard, uh, Julie does a lot of research talking about policies and change and transformation and ultimately power, both in organizations and in society. And her newest book, um, published by Simon & Schuster uh, and released for early release last, last summer, I think, um, is actually called Power for All. Uh, so Julie, I'm going to just kick it off with, um, with what is power? I think it's a really important question.
1: So uh, Lisa, power is um, the ability to influence other people's behavior. Right? Now, the truth is that this is a definition. This is not an explanation. <laughs> so the, the next question becomes, where does power come from? And this is a question that uh, Titiana Kashorio, my dear friend and co-author on that book, and myself, uh, have been asking many, many people over the past 20 years, like people from all walks of life across the world. and. Um, in paying close attention to people's answer to that critical question of where does power come from, what we've come to realize is that people tend to have deep misconceptions in mind about power. Mm-hmm. And we've come to worry a lot about these misconceptions because if we do not understand power, then what's going to happen is that we individually will get frustrated and will not be able to have the impact we want to have. And if we do not understand power, we collectively are in deep trouble because then we will not be able to identify, to prevent, to stop power abuses. And you know, this is the 15th year in a row that democracy has been declining across the globe. So the, yes. this is why the, the the misconceptions are worrisome to us. And that's why we decided to write that book, to debunk the misconceptions.
0: It's fascinating. And your and your prior book, which is coming out also, I think, by the uh, University of Chicago Press, but was already published in your native France, is um, The Working Manifesto, and also explores themes really of democratizing access to power and things like this. I think one of the interesting questions you or, or theses that you just posited is really from your research, which is people misconceive it. And my own personal, especially as we look at, you know, backwards in history and, Perhaps at the present moments for sure, which is this great Orwellian quote, which you know, I think Lord Acton, the British historian, started, which is like power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as we have money involved, so implicated in politics, but also the divide between the haves and the have-nots, what does this like? What are your concerns vis-a-vis power when people are misunderstanding what it is and
1: how you have it? So, in fact, what we've identified are three main misconceptions right, about power. The the, the first misconception that people have in mind that, that I worry about is this idea that somehow power is a possession, that some people have it, some people don't. And what people want to know, they come to me with questions like, can you give me the list? And I was initially puzzled, what list? But people want the list of personal characteristics that would make people powerful. Now, the second misconception about power is this idea that somehow power would be only for the people at the top. And it's only for the ceos the top executives the generals the presidents right and so on and then the third misconception is related to what you were just talking about lisa it's just sort of this idea that power is dirty right mm-hmm. and it's probably the most widespread misconception and if you put all of these things together people will say you know what um i don't think i have the personal characteristics and i'm not one of the people at the top but good for me because at least i'm not getting my hands dirty and this is when people turn their back on power. And this is when we get in trouble. Yeah. Uh, what we need is for people to understand it. And so now the key question is, where does power come from? And what we explain in the book is that it comes from control over access to valued resources. Yes. So I have power over you, Lisa, if I control access to resources that you need and want. And you Are have power expertise over me. on power. Exactly absolutely in fact in fact being able to understand power is is a necessary source of power to to be able to exercise any kind of power and and so this is a simple but core principle uh, control over access to valued resources and and we give life to it in the book and maybe that's what I should do. I should, I should maybe use one example so that people can really relate and understand Please. how the mechanism is at play. So in, in the process of writing the book, we actually interviewed more than 100 people across the world with very different paths to and through power. The idea there was to use their stories to illustrate everything we've learned through our research and other people's research on power. And so one of these people is uh, Nezuma Mjube. We actually talk about her in chapter seven of the of, of the book um nezuma uh, and jube lives in tanzania in a remote rural area and i vividly remember the first time i i met uh nezuma and i interviewed her i actually uh, talked to her about you know like her life or her childhood and she explained to me that she wanted to be a teacher but could never go to school uh, and then we talked about her power and here is what she said to me she said julie listen i i for the longest time in my life, I felt quite powerless, and her point was, see, I think I was really powerless, because you know I was, one, I was not one of the people sitting on the village council, and, and the powerful members of that council make all the decisions for the village. Now, Nezuma, in 2016, encountered an international NGO called Barefoot College, and that literally changed her life. She went from being one of the most powerless people in our community to becoming one of the most powerful ones. And how did that happen? It happened because Barefoot College has developed a truly innovative program that enables illiterate women across the global South to become solar engineers over five months through learning by doing and learning. So Nezuma actually enrolled in the program, uh, learned everything to become a solar engineer, came back to her community with the equipment to electrify. And so she didn't only literally bring power to the community, but in doing <laughs> that she became one of the most powerful people because she controlled access to a valuable resource for everyone, electricity. Now that gave her power in that context, Yeah, but yeah. that wouldn't have given her power in a urban community. So this is to show that, power is never a possession. It's always relational and relative. It, and it's contextual. It is contextual. And it's not only for the people at the top. Nezuma was not one of the people at the top, but she came back and she controlled access to electricity and that gave her power. And that later enabled her to become the first woman to be a member of the village council. It's so amazing. It's a really. wonderful story. I mean, and your, and your book is rife with them, including,
0: and we won't go into all of it, we don't have time, but you know, I think also, I mean, you talk about Izuma, but you also speak about like Donatella Versace and how she stepped into, you know, Gianni's shoes after his tragic murder, you know, and when everyone was doubting her and she was kind of like the fluff sister who had always had a seat at the table, but never really any talent. And of course, Versace still like looms large in the fashion zeitgeist today. So um, I think it's really interesting. And, and I guess I'll just quickly, because your book is about democratizing access to power for all. And for this very important reason, which is if we don't understand what power is and the the ways in which we can gain control some kind of needed and limited resource, right, then we allow power to be taken by this elite few or people who control something else. So in your book, Democratizing Access, what is your kind of like thinking about how people can do that? I mean, you know, not everyone can go and, and get electricity for their village, for instance. Like what are some of the tools and resources that you guys outlined and found to be useful?
1: So this is a great question. And, and, and so let, let me start with what we can each do and, and then I'll have to talk about what we can collectively do because this is absolutely critical, right? Um, the first step is understand those fundamentals. Because once you understand that, that power resides in control over access to valued resources, then you understand that if you want to be able to read the political landscape in any situation, there are only two questions you need to answer, right? What do people value and who controls access to the valued resources? Now, once you understand that, not only you can understand the power relationships around you, but you can better understand your own sources of power, right? is there something that I have access to that could be useful to you now can I give you access to these resources and empower you now it's going to be up to me obviously to use the power I have to empower you and and give you wings or to just advance my own interests. like power can be used for evil purposes and to pursue truly noble ends like those are the critical moral decisions that we have to make but and that's a spectrum right I mean there are two opposites it is a spectrum and, and, it's, and, and these are critically important moral decisions we have to make as to how we use the power that we have. Mm-hmm. But now with the fundamentals, not only you can understand now the political landscape, not only you can understand your sources of power, but you can also start understanding what you can do to rebalance right, power across different relationships in your lives. Uh, because what could you do? Like, they are only four strategies to use, right? I could try and convince you that what I have to offer to you is more important to you than you ever thought. That's what marketing professionals do all the time, right? <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. Branding. Branding, right? I could try and reduce the number of alternatives you have to me to access the resources that you need and want. This is what workers understood when they created unions, right? And, and, and this is the power of unions. This is also what happens with monopolies when companies concentrate all their power and then get so much unhealthy power over Amazon. customers. Absolutely. And this is something we have to deeply think about. You know, are we fine with these things? Yeah. Shouldn't we regulate, right? Th- these are critical things. So those are two strategies. But then remember, like you may have power over me. I also may have power over you. So what can you do to rebalance a power relationship? Uh, you could also try and see if you could live maybe without the resources I have to offer. And just, you know, use a withdrawal approach and say, Well, I don't need you. these things that you know you, you you were giving to me anymore. And if so, you really reduce my power over you. The other thing you can do is try to expand the number of alternatives you have to me. This to is negotiating strategy, right? These, these, these are all the four strategies you can use. And and then again, it's up to you to use them in a way that's going to make sense for you. And also hopefully be all, not only about you, but also the well-being of others and empowering others. But all of those are at the individual interpersonal level. And, and, and what I, I care about, and this is why we wrote all eight chapters in that book and not only the first four chapters, like obviously you talked about power being contextual, Lisa, and you're absolutely right. Like our relationship doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. It, it happened in a given context. And the truth is that there are power hierarchies, power structures in society that enable some of us and constrain others. Absolutely. Right? And, and so if, we, if you want to think about what it is that you can do, right? there's what you can do in all of the relationships in your life. We just talked about that. And then there's the question of what can we do all together to disrupt unjust power hierarchies? Yes. I think about sexism, think about, think about racism. Racism, we just like, yep. yeah. Absolutely. There's there so much we have to do. And this is the power of collective action. That's what we turn to in the second half of the book, and that's where we have a lot to learn if we want to address the challenges you mentioned related to all the crises that we're currently facing. So I want to I want to
0: look back into history for a second because I think there's an interesting correlation in where we are as a world right now. You know, man hasn't been on this planet for that long. I think we all fail to realize, you know, how old the geologic timeline of this planet is. You know, we've been here for a sixth of as long as the dinosaurs were here. You know, And yet we have these patterns that have emerged. And I think power is one of the dynamics that has set humans up in different ways forever, both for self-preservation and the original tribe and community, as well as where we're going. How do you see correlations in history for today, but also how has power kind of changed over the course of human time?
1: This is an interesting question you're asking and you're right to be thinking about the historical perspective there. So here is the critical thing. The critical thing is that you're absolutely right, right? Things have changed and they've changed quite dramatically. Like think about the agricultural revolution, the printing revolution, now the digital revolution we're all experiencing, you know, in between all that, we had a first industrial revolution, a second one, like so many aspects of lives in organizations, life in society have changed, right? Yep. Now has power changed? And I'm going to make a big statement now, Lisa. <laughs> I'm going to say, no, it has not changed. The fundamentals of power, and I'm willing to sign a document now saying like the fundamental of power, those fundamentals were the same thousands of years ago when human beings were trying to get organized to live together on this planet. And I'm willing to say they will remain the same for as long as there will be human beings on this planet, assuming we get our act together and we don't destroy our planet. Yes. Uh, So power resides in control over access to valued resources that has not changed and will not change. So power itself is not changing. Now, I know that with the digital revolution, the pace of change has increased. Absolutely. And that now we all have this impression that everything is changing and people come to me and, and they want to know what has changed with power. But so here is what has changed, not the principle, not the fundamentals, but what has changed is what we value and who controls access to the valued resources. Yes. It already happened with the agricultural revolution. It happened with the printing revolution, the first, the second industrial revolutions. Today, what we value has changed and who controls access to the valued resources has changed. You were talking about Amazon, think about big tech.
0: Absolutely, it's the top five.
1: I was just thinking
0: about that as you're speaking, Julie, because that is in fact, one of the big concerns that we have right now is the pace of change has accelerated, obviously. I mean, digital has exponentialized change, I think, right, the pace of it. And yet, to your point, there are top five companies who not only account for X percentage of the S&P 500 you know, value today, but also if they were to disappear, you know, a lot of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of jobs would disappear, market capitalization, all that. But more importantly, it is where access to information now and access to goods and services to your point of the definition of power as control of a a valuable resource comes from. So are we concerned in the power structure that when you get this top, you know, Bezos, Musk, et cetera, Zuckerberg increasing their wealth by billions of dollars a day during this pandemic, is this a concern to the imbalance of power and how would your book address this?
1: I think this is a big concern. I'll I'll, I'll tell you this is a being concerned. Why? Well, there's a lot we know from our own experiences, from history, and from research in social sciences. When uh, inequalities become extreme, what we've learned is that uh, our societies, our communities become less safe, they become less healthy, and they become less productive. So now let's think for a minute about the multidimensional crisis we're all experiencing now. Like it's obviously a tragic health crisis related to the pandemic, but not only related to your question. In fact, we've also been experiencing a, a social and economic crisis that's characterized by rising inequalities that affect some parts of the population much more than others. Yep. Right? Think about women, think about racialized groups, right, for example. Absolutely. And we're also facing an ongoing environmental crisis that has been ongoing for a long time. Right. And, it, and,
0: yeah. and, is, and is at a kind of critical juncture.
1: At a critical juncture. And if we want to trace the roots of this multidimensional crisis, we have to account for the role of neoliberalism, right? that has focused a lot of our attention energy on maximizing profit, on maximizing financial value. And what we've learned from all the research is that uh, this focus on maximizing financial value has been associated with increasing inequalities, and the further destruction of the planet Absolutely. so now am i concerned if we stay the course we know what's going to happen we will further increase inequalities with the consequences i described for our communities and societies and we will further destroy the planet so the truth is that we will all lose i mean the people who are in power disadvantaged positions have been losing for a long time yes but the people at the top will lose as well why not only because we all live on this planet but also because uh, if you are at the top of that power hierarchy now, as I said, when you have very high levels of inequalities, we know that productivity is now being reduced. So you have a large slice of the pie, but it's shrinking. Yes. So we all have now to take action to change our social and economic and, and And there's a lot of work to do. But if we do it together, I think we can absolutely do it. Well, I I mean, and I love that
0: hopeful view, and that's really resonates throughout the book. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about some of those things. But I mean, one of the things in your very impressive bio that I did not mention, of course, is that you are the founder and faculty chair of this very new um, initiative, if you will. It's the Social Innovation and Change Initiative at Harvard. Um, You are on the front lines, I think, of trying to democratize access to power at one of the most elite you know, uh, academic establishments in the world, if not the most. Um, Let's talk about power in that context a little bit and how this book and, you know, powerforallthebook.com gives people access. You know, you were talking about some online courses and enabling power and access for everyone, regardless of whether they can pay. I mean, there are a lot of things that need to happen. You just mentioned, I mean, the people at the top need to get informed, Right. I mean, and, and relinquish a little bit of, of power and recognize power power. Absolutely. To share, I mean, Absolutely. And then you have all the people that, you know, kind of the bottom, but meaning really basically the 99% of us who need to figure out how we reestablish ourselves and, and share power. So uh, can you just share with all of the broad experience that you have and the tools that you're putting out into the world, Julie, and the research you've done, what do you think the best ways um, and what are your hopes?
1: So this is this is such an important question. You know the the, the reason why uh, I created the social innovation and change initiative uh, at uh, Harvard and I have the privilege of working with an amazing team of young people they are all dedicated to supporting social change makers. The reason why I created it is because I wanted to be able to support the work of not only our students at Harvard but the work of social innovators social change makers across the world through disseminating Uh, everything we're learning and and learning from them and and continuing to do research that hopefully will contribute to that broader movement to change our social and economic systems. Now, what I see in my research is that when you try to implement what I call divergent changes, changes that are breaking with the, the rules of the game at a given moment in the life of a society, when you want to implement these divergent changes, you have to face the reality that they're going to trigger a lot of resistance. And again, that's not something you can do alone. It's something we have to do collectively as part of movements. That's what else we've learned from research and from history. Now, what I've seen in my own work is that these movements succeed when they do not only agitate, but they also innovate and Mm -hmm. orchestrate change adoption. And what I mean by it is that, yes, agitation is critical. Right? Take Occupy Wall Street. You were talking about the 1% versus the 99% what a great deal of highly needed agitation and it was effective but somehow the movement died right and the changes we were expecting after this financial crisis didn't happen at all why so well at the time we didn't really have a set of innovations that people really knew of that could be now implemented at scale and help change our systems uh, i'm more hopeful this time around in the midst of this crisis the multidimensional dimensional crisis we're facing now why? Because we've had social innovators across the world, social entrepreneurs, leaders of not for profits, government leaders who've been pilot testing solutions to try and push forward new models of getting organized, right? And and we can now build on these models and, and, and scale them. And this is why we need the innovators, the social innovators, and this is why we need the orchestrators. Yeah. And so now what we have to do is make sure that we look around and we get to understand how we can assemble these innovations. And, and then we work together to, to scale them and make the change happen. Now, this is not going to be easy but this is highly feasible and so I'd be happy Lisa to uh, be a little bit more specific about some of the changes that I think can happen but you you tell me where do you want to go from there
0: I I I am looking at the times Judy and I'm like oh my god I want I want to hear about all of them but I'm going to wrap us up because and I want you to be able to direct people um I think you know powerforallthebook.com is a great source you can buy the book obviously Simon and Schuster is for a wide distribution but I think what you just said and I want to just close on this is Activate, innovate, orchestrate, right? I mean, this is really—I think I got those correct.
1: Agitate, innovate, orchestrate. Agitate,
0: and 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 that makes so much sense because it is—it's—it's it's this like starting the the niggling of the seed, right? Like it's this like little thing that you want to make sure is like the squeaky wheel, right? And and then you need to think outside the box and go beyond. And we certainly are at that moment in time. And then of course we have to organize and or orchestrate, as you said, to act, to to execute things. Um, Is there anything that, you know, you want to leave listeners and viewers with as like a last final thought about what they can do or should do to kind of, if you will, reverse this power dynamic that is shifting towards an imbalance rather than a, a democracy for all?
1: Yes, I, I'll end with what we can all do in our organizations and in our companies. I think what's at stake today, because organizations, companies will play a critical role in either reproducing the status quo or changing things. And what's at stake now is power sharing and holding those in power accountable. And so in terms of power sharing, what do we need to do? Uh, the great resignation in the United States is there to remind us of the fact that employees, workers are saying enough is enough like we want to say in our working conditions. We want to say when it comes to the future of our companies, we don't want to work for companies that pollute. We don't want to work for companies that mistreat their employees and their communities around them. And so what do we need more power sharing between the representatives of the shareholders uh, and the shareholders, the top managers and the employees? In most companies in the US, uh, workers, employees do not have a say They are not part of the decision making bodies. They are not represented on the board. That could change. It has already happened in Europe with co-determination models. It's the case in Germany, many other countries. We also know about cooperatives, worker owned organizations, right? There are models out there and we need to share power and engage the employees more because this is also what they're asking for and what they want. Power sharing should also happen across groups. We talked about the Me Too movement. Black Lives Matter, power absolutely has to be shared. Distributed, uh, yeah. And this is about inclusion uh, and, and diversity in organizations. And we give at uh, the example of Ellen O'Shua, uh, who was the first Latina astronaut to go to space and was running the Johnson Space Center and was able to make it more inclusive. It's in chapter eight for whoever is interested in learning more about that. But then I want to end with the fact that yes, power sharing is critical, but we also need to hold those in power accountable, not only for financial performance, but also for the social and environmental impacts of the organizations. And I'm going to end where I started with the fundamentals of power, right? Power resides in control over access to valued resources. So now the two questions, what do people value and who controls access to the valued resources? The truth is that those are the critical questions we are confronting for the future. I know, you know like this is about the future. What will we value? And who will control the valued resources? It's up to us to decide. It's up to us to make those collective decisions. They are critically important ones. They are highly political. This is not technical. And I think it's important we all engage, which is why we wrote the book, hoping that many more people would join the conversation. Oh.
0: Julie, I cannot thank you enough.
1: Your passion, your
0: insight, your expertise is contagious. And thank you for joining us on Future of XYZ today to share what you know, 20 years of research on, on, on power.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight to spend that time with you, truly.
0: Um, well, everyone, you really should go and read this book, I highly recommend it. And uh, if you ever have a chance to take a course with Julie, uh, there will be some publicly available soon. And uh, it's, 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 a, she's a force, as you can tell. And everyone listening and watching, thank you for subscribing to Future of XYZ on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Music, anywhere you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow Future of XYZ on Instagram or visit us at future-of.xyz to nominate future guests, including yourselves. Thank you. And Julie, merci encore. Merci
1: à tous. Thank you so much. Ciao. Bye-bye.
0: thanks for listening to the future of xyz if you like what you've been hearing please follow lisa grelnick on linkedin visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the future of xyz podcast on spotify apple or wherever you get your podcasts